It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniel Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Friday, July 9th, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is entitled Jews and Arabs in the State of Israel. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, senior research fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself discuss a current issue central to Israel in the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinheim, director of the Hartman faculty in North America, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Let's begin. Israel is and has always been a society of contradictions, balancing security dangers with economic prosperity, cohesiveness with sectarian tribalism, secularism with religious extremism. We now have a new contradiction, which depending on how it will play out, could dramatically shape the future of Israeli society as a whole. This latest contradiction involves the relationship between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arab Palestinian citizens. On the one hand, the situation has never been better. For the first time, an Israeli Arab party is a formal part of the coalition. And given the coalition's narrow majority, the coalition has to be in constant contact and negotiations with other Arab party members in the opposition. At the same time, we are now less than one month after what were the most violent riots and attacks between Jews and Arabs in Israel's mixed cities since the founding of the state. The greatest moment of coexistence and the greatest moment of mutual hatred. An unprecedented 30 billion shekel, almost $10 billion, has been earmarked for special allocation within Arab society. That's beyond the normal budget issues and allocations. And these are being earmarked for a special allocation to help overcome the economic disparity and fight crime. At the same time, the coalition is attempting to extend the temporary injunction, which allows the state to refuse Israeli Arab Palestinians the right to family reunification in Israel with Palestinians from Judea and Samaria. An injunction, by the way, that was passed during the Second Intifada almost 20 years ago out of a particular security concern at the time that is no longer applicable. Israeli Arabs benefit from full equal rights, protected by the basic law of human freedom and dignity, and at the same time experience marginalization and discrimination under another basic law, which defines Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. What's going on here? What are the roots of this contradiction? Can they be resolved? What needs to happen so we can resolve the contradictions and maybe embark 
on a coherent new path? Do we even want to embark on a coherent new path? Yossi, it's wonderful to be with you. Always. I know this, but Yossi is in terrible, terrible back pain. <laughs> Not fully coherent today. <laughs> We're embracing your pain, you and your pain, Yossi. Well, thank you. Thank you. We'll see what manages to come through the fog of medication. <laughs> okay. Do you remember what the theme is? <laughs> I do. I do. And I really am mull I'm mulling over uh, your opening comments, which I think are, are just stunning. If we, if we could just sit with that for a moment, because this is an unbelievable time in Israel, the worst time in the history of Arab-Jewish relations, and the best time. And that's such a quintessential Israeli moment. And it, it says so much also about why people get Israel wrong, why outside observers consistently misread Israel. Because whatever statement you can make, you can take half of your statement, this is the best time in Arab-Israeli, in Arab-Jewish relations, and you'll be right. But then, well, wait a minute, a month ago you were killing each other, you were lynching each other in the streets. Well, that's also right. It's exhausting. It's it's exhausting. It's, 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 you know, Israel's interesting, but I have to tell you it's also exhausting. But it makes for a good podcast. <laughs> we, we're going to talk from an Israeli Jew's perspective. Where did this such unbelievable complication and complexity between Jews and Arabs, where did it come from? Is it just simple bias? Is it, you know, Jews have a problem with universalism? Or is there something more com Is there something about Israel which makes this issue really, really difficult? I think that um, the dilemma that we have with our Arab minority comes from an excess of success of Zionism. Uh, Zionism set out to recreate the Jewish people, to take this people that were scattered throughout the world and, and bring them back here and recreate a coherent people. And, and Zionism succeeded. It, it recreated the Jewish people. But Zionism also succeeded in doing something that I don't think it fully intended to or thought through the consequences about. And that is, it created another people, the Israelis. Who are the Israelis? You know, we have coalition crises. Who, who is a Jew? We don't know who an Israeli is. And in, in the minds of most Israeli Jews, when you say Israeli, what do you mean? You mean Jew. It turns out that 20, 25 percent of, of our population happens not to be Jewish. And we never, we have never fully owned the consequences of that enormous success of creating a whole other people. Now, obviously, there's overlap between the Jewish people and the Israeli people, but we're not identical. And so who are we? Who, who is an Israeli? I love this, yes. So just so you should know, so far, the drugs are doing great. <laughs> it's a really interesting point, because what you're saying is that we, we never thought through Israelism. And then, so what do you expect when 20% of your society, they're living in a country where nobody, no one ever thought about them? We don't even have a category. We think of Israelism as Jewishness, but it's not. So one profound challenge, and this is a, a really important consequence of what you said, is that we have to engage 
not only in the internal Jewish dilemmas of who is a Jew, but Israeli society has to begin, and in particular, the Jewish majority in Israel has to begin to understand what it means by Israeliness, and only in that way could we begin a more coherent conversation um, about the Israeli Arab minority. It actually never occurred to me until this moment, but for with all the many times that I've read and reread the Declaration of Independence, it only hit me now that the founders thought of Israeliness in terms of democratic rights for individuals. They didn't think of Israeliness as an identity that was somehow distinct from Jewishness. They speak about the Jewish people, and then they say, and yes, of course, there'll be non-Jews in Israel, and we'll give them democratic rights. But they didn't think through the, the, the consequences of identity. Who are these people? Who are these people? I, I think there's another part that I want to share with our listeners. And I want to argue that in many ways, Israel is still in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Building this country, creating a Jewish state, there was one core condition, which at the time couldn't be taken for granted. And that was, we need to have here a Jewish majority. I don't care what the boundaries of the country are, and whether we accept partition, didn't accept partition, there's one thing, this country will only be viable when we have a majority. And when we first came, by the mid-30s, there's 200,000 Jews here. By the formation of the state, there's only 600,000. Numbers was an obsession to the Zionist discourse. Because you couldn't, you couldn't be democratic, but even before democratic, you couldn't be viable. You couldn't be viable if there wasn't a mass of Jews. And I think a deep part of the psyche of this country we see Arabs as a demographic problem. It's ingrained at the core dimension of Zionist agenda and self-understanding. Now, when you come, and this is just, I'm gonna lay it on top of the Israeliness, when you do have a sense of Israel, and 20% of your society, your first lens with which you look at them is not terrorism, it's not political conflict. It's not. And therefore, no matter what the Israeli, how loyal Israeli Arabs are, it'll never matter. They can serve in the army. It'll never matter. At the end of the day, we start the conversation where we look at some citizens as, you're a demographic problem. And when somebody is a demographic problem, there's an ingrained, is it discrimination? anger, hostility, distance, just distance. You're a problem. And that's not a way, if we're gonna build an Israeli society, we're gonna have to stop thinking about Arabs as a problem. You know, at the end of this, of this podcast, we're gonna talk about the recent family reunification law, but I wanna leave it aside for now and what that means towards this issue. But what is it about? You know, it's like here it is, you could have different societies trying to figure out how do we live and how do we live together? And here we start the discussion, you're a problem. And that creates very, very difficult, and I would argue morally dangerous and morally problematic. It made sense in the 20s, 30s, but now? 
let me defend the 1920s for a moment. No, here. I think they're right. Even for the 2020s. Let me make the case. For the 2020s? Because yes. I agree. I understood it in the, in the yes. 1920s. Yes. It's when you're doing it in 2020 that, it's, that it creates a problem. See, first of all, I'm with you in feeling this deep unease, stronger than unease. I, I, I feel sullied by, by thinking of my fellow citizens who are Arab as a demographic problem. You know, it's a little bit like... Uh, like the ancient Egyptians thinking of the uh, the Hebrews as a uh, as a demographic problem, I, I it doesn't sit well. Doesn't sit well. But here's the big but: when you say that even if the Arabs served in the army, we would still regard them as a demographic threat, I really wonder about that. Because just imagine for a moment that instead of a million Arab Israelis, there were a million Druze who serve in the army, who wave the flag. You know, you go to a Druze village and you see from every tzimmer uh, an Israeli flag hanging. Would we really regard the Druze as a demographic threat? So that's, that's one part of it. This, the second part is that so long as the right of return remains the beating heart of Palestinian nationalism, so long as that remains the core demand uh, of the Palestinian national movement, um, I, will not, I will not fully trust my fellow Arab citizens, uh, especially on, uh, on, on the demographic issue. You see, but like, okay, you're, you're going into now into the political. And I, I wanted to, see, I wanted to go before we get into whether you trust, I trust, they trust. I want to go into that now. But before we get into the trusting dimensions of the conversation, what it just if if that we were surrounded by two hundred million Jews, and if there were two Jews, or if that was the beginning narrative, I do believe serving in the army doesn't overcome it, right. because it's something our greatest existential danger in Israel is not our external enemy, but whether there's a Jewish majority here. And so, okay, but you know what, we can leave that. But let's now go, let's shift to the political, which you started to get into. The core problem of the political is that the conversation starts with two mutually exclusive narratives. For the Jewish people, Israel, as our anthem, is the tikva, is a 2,000-year-old hope. And in this 2,000-year hope, frankly, even if they're a minority, even if they're not a danger, Israeli Arabs and Palestinians aren't part of it. They weren't, they never hoped that I was going to come home. And I didn't even think about them. You know, I, at the end, I had to adjust to the fact that they were here. But when I come, this is the homeland of the Jewish people. You talked about the Declaration of Independence. We talk about our connection to this land and how nobody else ever had a connection as much. We're talking about us, 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 our narrative. There is nobody here in its most extreme form. We came, we were a people without a land, coming to a land without a people. Conversely, for Palestinians, they, and another way of saying what you said at the beginning is Zionism was very successful because it also not only created three people, the Jewish people, an Israeli people, and also a Palestinian people. Arabs become Palestinians. We learn from each other, and that's just fine. I'm not undermining their legitimacy, but that their Palestinian narrative, which is now a core part of their identity, is built on Nakba 
built on the catastrophe which they experienced as a result of us. So it's not that we're not here. Their life was great before we are here, and we are the source of their catastrophe. Now, this, whenever we engage in these political narratives, and you would start, you know, who trusts whom, it's like, it becomes a dead end. Is there any way around it? You're right in that there's, there's baggage to unpack before we even get to the political. And I think you just touched on it, which is that, that Zionism was so self-obsessed with its overwhelming mission of trying to reconstitute this fragmented people that it didn't have the attention span. Everyone and anything else was extraneous. So even before we get to hostility, and here you're right, the Druze would have been extraneous, no matter how patriotic to Israelis. Anyone who was really outside of the, the Zionist mission of saving, not just reconstituting the Jewish people, but saving, physically saving the Jewish people from multiple threats around the world. It wasn't only the Holocaust, it was the collapse of of Jewish communities in the Arab world. It was Soviet Jewry. Uh, Zionism was, was justifiably overwhelmed with trying to save the different parts of the Jewish people that were endangered around the world. That's even before we get to the conflict. Then when you factor in the conflict, you know, big surprise that we, we got to the point where we are now in relations between these two peoples. Is there anything we can do about it? Or are we stuck there in your mind? Or is it until the political doesn't get resolved, the, the mutually exclusive narratives have to define us? Look, the truth is that we're not starting from zero in our relations with, with Arab citizens of Israel. We have 70 years of, of relationships often dysfunctional relationships, but not only. There are neighborly relations, you know, and I've said this before on, on our podcast, I live in a building that's 40% Arab-Israeli in Jerusalem, and uh, we have neighborly relations. It's not intimate, and who knows what, what everyone says behind closed doors, but I see, I see my building as a kind of metaphor for much of what has been created here. In other words, this government, this government that we now have of, of an Arab party, an Islamist party, no less, uh, joining a Jewish coalition, it doesn't come from nowhere. There's, there's, there's a context. What you're saying, Yossi, is that there is, there were the founding narratives, but that in fact, even though Israeli society doesn't have a narrative of itself, there is the beginning of a new story that Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews are telling, um, and that has something. That's a really interesting thing. Part of what, I, I'm a little more skeptical about that. Uh, and I think part of what we've seen in the last couple of months is how thin that narrative is. In general, and I know I over-intellectualize things, but that's who I am. Um, I think we need to actually create new core identity narratives. You see, some people think that, you know what, how are we going to live together, leave our political narratives aside, 
and let's let's play music, let's play ball, let's eat hummus together. And the dynamic of life will diminish the significance of the prior narratives. I think, you know, that's, I think it's positive, but unless there aren't new narratives which we bring to the table, we're, we're building this coexistence on, on sand and water. Yes, we definitely need new narratives and we need new political relationships. And that's why this government is so hopeful. This right. is the first time where we're seeing the possibility of real power sharing. Right. I want to come to that. I, just want to, I want to just finish this one point. I think that one of the things that could become the foundation of new shared narratives is paradoxically a religion. That what Jews, Christians, and Muslims don't learn, and we don't, we don't learn each other's political narratives, but we are also in the Middle East, we are deeply, even if you're secular, you're deeply rooted in your traditional narratives. And here, there's actually a lot of room for mutual respect. We could look at the values we share. I, as a Jew, could look at what does Friday or Sunday mean for Muslims or Christians, and we could talk about our tradition. We could maybe begin to celebrate each other's calendars. You know, in Israeli, in this society, which is completely Jewish, the only calendar is the Jewish calendar. What would happen if also Muslim and Christian holidays were celebrated? What would happen if a Muslim felt, yes, I'm seeing, instead of being completely absent and transparent, I'm here. The whole country stops, not just I stop. There's some sense whereby our religious traditions could create a vehicle for tolerance and pluralism in ways that our politics can't. And what makes it powerful is that they are just as important to our identities as our political identities. And so I think what we need to do is we need to start developing other dimensions of core identity narratives where I can engage you where I don't feel threatened by you. The depth and meaning of Islam and Christianity doesn't threaten me as a Jew, especially here in Israel where I'm the majority and vice versa. So I think we need to explore some of those directions all the while doing what you said, um, and that is begin to thicken the everyday Israeli narrative, not to speak of thinking about what is the meaning of Israeliness. But before we come to an end, I want to ask you one last question, which is something that came up very recently in the news. And in many ways, for um, it could be far more explosive than Sheikh Jarrah. And that is the family reunification law. Um, the family reunification law is a law, an Israeli Jew who marries a non-citizen of Israel, Jew or non-Jew alike, is able to apply and, and receive, um, by definition, uh, citizenship in the state of Israel. We have a process. Even the law of return says, you know, if you're married to a Jew, Jew or non-Jew alike, Palestinians, if they marry somebody from outside of the country, they have no access to uh, citizenship through family reunification. Now, in the first, I'm just going to give a little history. In the first intifada, the Shabak, how do you say Shabak in English? The, uh, the Shin Bet. The Shin Bet saw that precisely during the second intifada, this could be a way for terrorists to acquire an Israeli citizenship. And while Israeli Arab Palestinians 
have never constituted a fifth column. This could be an avenue for terrorists to, to enter into the country. So they tried to pass a law. And the government said, and the Supreme Court turned down the law as discriminatory. So what they did is they said, we're going to pass a temporary law, a temporary inaction. It's not a law. It's not a permanent law. It's a temporary inaction. And the government and the Supreme Court said, since it's a temporary inaction, we'll allow it to stand. And that temporary inaction, just like we Jews, you know, we sell a lot of legalism, we renew it on an annual basis. And since it's not a permanent law, it passes. But in theory, it does present a serious question about whether Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs are in fact equal. You know, here it is, you're sitting in the coalition and, and the government couldn't pass the law because the Israeli Arab uh, members of the coalition refused to vote for it. So there isn't a majority. Here it is, this is where we stand right now. Uh, add any more facts to the story, you'll see that you want, but what do you, what do you make of this law? Uh, it's, not, it's not more facts, it's the context. It's the emotional, the psychological, and, and the political context, which again is that we are still at war with a rival national movement uh, whose, whose core goal is, uh, is right of return. And anything that hints at right of return, a trickle, a flood, uh, is seen uh, justifiably, from my point of view, by most Israeli Jews as a, as a threat. And you're right, Daniil, it's not about terrorism. It's not about security in that sense, but it is very much about right of return. And, you know, for me, I, I see this law as a temporary law, uh, temporary in the sense that pending a peace agreement between, between the Jewish national movement and the Palestinian national movement, we need to continue to ensure that right of return does not happen in any form. So look, it's temporary, but long-term temporary. I agree with you that the right of return, that until Palestinians don't give up the larger right of return, there will never be peace uh, between us. Um, there never will be. Because one way of defeating Israel is not through the battlefield, but through the right of return. But I don't see this family reunification law as doing that. The right of return is a right that numerically you can't control. It could, in theory, encompass millions and millions of people. But this law of family reunification, when every single Israeli, Arab, Palestinian is now going to marry someone in the West Bank, like this is it, we're now never married. You know what? If that happens, I'm all for returning this law. Even have a checkbook, like say, okay, we're talking what? 10, 20, 40, 50,000 people? What are we talking? Like, that's at the top number right now, and that's all the marriages that took place for years. We have 7.2 million Jews, 2 million Arabs, and an equal birth rate. When are we going to declare or internalize that we want? When you give up on the self-defense moral argument, you actually put in place other moral arguments. Because I have a moral response. I cannot discriminate between Jews and Arabs on the basis of we need a majority of Jews. You can't do it. 
I could talk about the survival of the state, but right now those numbers aren't there. And I think this law is a, for me, expresses the, the inner contradiction that we spoke about from the beginning. We're, we're, we're moving forward and engaging with Israeli Arabs as part of, a cult, of the leadership of the country, and we're still looking at them as a danger. And I think until we don't change that, our, our commitment to equality and our commitment to building a moral society is going to be uh, seriously impaired. I want to give you the last word on this, Yossi, if you want it, before I turn, before we take a break and turn to Ilana. What makes this dynamic so complicated is that we Jews and Arabs are simultaneously a majority and a minority. Uh, we, the Jews, of course, are a majority in our own state, but we are very aware of the minority status uh, that we hold in the region. We are the only non-Arab, non-Muslim state for thousands of kilometers around. And uh, the Arab Israelis, the Palestinian Israelis, even the vagueness of how, of how they refer to themselves is an expression of this majority-minority status, and feel themselves at once second-class citizens in a Jewish state, and at the same time part of a regional uh, hostile majority to Israel. And uh, there's something that our friend uh, Muhammad Darausha, uh, one of the fellows at, uh, at, at Hartman, uh, has said, uh, which, which I think is really worth repeating, which is that the real breakthrough will happen when Jews start acting like a majority and when uh, Arabs start acting like a minority. Uh, and, and there's great wisdom in that. And uh, Arab politicians need to stop threatening the Jewish majority, need to stop pressing our, our, our most uh, sensitive points, uh, which they do routinely. And, uh, and the Jewish majority needs to show something of the generosity of what you were expressing a moment ago. And, uh, and I think that that really is the key to, to breaking the logjam. As the majority, we have the responsibility to take the first step. But I think that for this process to really work, uh, the Arab leadership is going to have to take responsibility as well. And what we're seeing with, with Abbas, with, uh, with the Ra'am party that has joined the government, is the first sign, for the first time, an Arab leader is taking that responsibility. And I would say that we need to honor his courage and we need to rethink some of our positions. I would just say that if I would be presenting my own voice, there would be no but in it. <laughs> Let's take a short break and when we return, Lana Steinheim will join us. Hi, my name is Michelle Biderstone, and I want to tell you about an exciting, groundbreaking curriculum we are launching at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism is based on four decades of the best Hartman scholarship on the foundational concepts of Judaism and Jewish life. This new four-volume curriculum explores the most compelling questions in Jewish thought and makes them accessible to all audiences. It's not a how-to Judaism 101 course, but instead serves as a complement for those looking to grapple with philosophical questions at the heart of Jewish tradition. 
specifically Jewish peoplehood, faith, ethics, and practice. To find out more on how you can bring foundations for a thoughtful Judaism to your community, please visit shalomhartman.org foundations. Ilana, it's great to be with you again. You heard our conversation. You know, what's, what classical sources do you want to share with us that could that can help us understand, overcome, think about this crazy bifurcated reality that we find ourselves in right now? Well, before getting to the sources, I just want to say two quick things about the substance of your conversation. One is, you know, I, any good therapist will tell you that if you want to change a pattern, um, you need both sides to change the pattern. And so when Yossi was talking about um, who takes the first step and how the dance steps change, I think it really is a psychological insight to need both sides to change the pattern. And then the second thing I want to say is I really noticed as I was listening to you that, you know, you brought up narratives, like collective identity narratives, which are clashing. You brought up religious narratives, which can, which can clash, but also can find some similarity. You brought up just the humanity of interacting with each other. I want to just bring up two more. One is interests, right? Like sometimes people get along because it's in their best interest to do so. And what are the motivations? What are the carrots and sticks that are out there allowing people to do that without getting to the level of narratives? And then the last is actually something that I also heard from Mohammed Darausha about regional um, identities, where he talked about how instead of thinking about Arab-Israeli identity or Palestinian citizen of Israel identity and Jewish-Israeli identity, what about regional identities? What brings together the people who live together in the South or in the North or in, in the Merkaz or wherever people live, what brings them together? So I just wanted to throw those into the mix. But what I want to say in terms of Jewish sources is I don't think we have a great model for this conversation, right? We, we don't really have a great model for being in, as you say, sort of like co-citizenship with people who are indigenous people who live among us, where we're the majority and they're the minority, but we're all citizens together. I mean, we have the idea of a ger toshav, a resident alien, and there, there's something that works about it, meaning they're part of us. But the problem is it, it implies that we're the permanent and they're the res resident aliens with us, which for people who have family going back dozens of generations in this land, it's, it's very hard to call people, uh, you know, an alien, right? There's something off about that. We also have the seven indigenous nations. We know that's not really going to work because biblically you're supposed to wipe some of those out. We know that Joshua doesn't actually do that in the end. And you have the book of Judges famously describing the various cycles of peace and violence that go, you know, 40 years at a time, there'll be peace between us and the other indigenous inhabitants. Then we'll have the cycle of violence, right? I mean, it's, it's actually better than probably what Israel and Hamas have uh, currently, but it's still not a, a model for Palestinian citizens of Israel or Arab Israelis. And then there's the Gibeonites. If you look in Joshua chapter nine, who find their way, kind of weasel their way into making a breed, into making a covenant with the Jews. And they're made to be water carriers and wood choppers, which essentially puts them at secondary, if, if that, kind of status in society. So it doesn't really work. And then I think to myself, well, what about us in exile when we're the minority and we play nice, we make nice to the majority around us to keep the peace? It's sort of, the, it's the reverse. It's not where we're the majority. 
it's where we're the minority and we're trying to keep the peace with someone else. So we don't have a great example. And nonetheless, I think I want to dramatize the, the, the point about Palestinian identity for Arab Israeli citizens, meaning I, I respect what you said about the demographic issue that even if people served in the army, then maybe it would still be a problem. But the ideology and the, and the collective um, identity, I, I, I want to touch on that because we do have some really interesting, we have an interesting example. It's a little provocative, but you know, provocative is not always necessarily bad. And it's not from the Bible. It's from the Book of Jubilees, which is a Jewish book. It's just not a sanctified book. It's not a sacred book um, in Jewish tradition. In the Book of Jubilees, chapter 46, there's a description, and Yossi, it's funny, you kind of alluded to it earlier when you said Egyptians, how they looked at Jews in the Bible, but it, it kind of alludes to what happens or describes what happens after Joseph dies and how the shift in attitude from the Jews, or at that time, the Israelites, being an, an integral part of Egyptian society to becoming this fifth column how that actually happens. So it goes like this. We're in chapter 46 of Jubilees. And it came to pass that after Jacob died, the children of Israel multiplied in the land of Egypt, and they became a great nation. And they were of one accord in heart. And Joseph died being 110 years old. And just a little about his life, 17 years he lived in the land of Canaan, 10 years he was a servant, three years in prison, and 80 years he was under the king, ruling all the land of Egypt. But then the text goes on to say what Joseph told his family to do before he died. And he commanded the children of Israel before he died that they should carry his bones with them when they went forth from the land of Egypt. And he made them swear regarding his bones, for he knew that the Egyptians would not again bring forth and bury him in the land of Canaan. You know why? Because the king of Canaan, who was living in the land of Assyria, had fought with the king of Egypt and killed him. In other words, Joseph wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan, Canaan, but Egypt, the country that he led, was at war with Canaan. So his roots in Canaan actually were at odds with his fealty to Egypt. And so if you continue in that chapter in Jubilees, what it describes is that the children of Israel, being the descendants of Jacob, they buried all of Joseph's brother's bones in Canaan. So what you find in the continuation of, of the narrative in Jubilees 46 is that knowing that Egypt and Canaan were at war, the children of Israel couldn't take Joseph's bones with them, but instead they took Joseph's brother's bones with them, left Egypt, went to Canaan, buried them there, and then came back to Egypt. And this is the explanation in the book of Jubilees for how Pharaoh started to look at the Jews as a fifth column. Well, why are these Israelites going to bury their people in a country that we're at war with? I mean, where do their loyalties actually lie? And I, I think it's very dramatic. You know, on the one hand, it gives us an insight into, you know, 
the opposite side of this, right? Like, what does it feel like for somebody to look at you and say, well, you're burying your people in a country that's at war with us. Are you really loyal to us or are you a fifth column? And the dangers of oppression when you think that, but on the other hand, feeling it as Zionists today and asking the question about Palestinian citizens of Israel and their relationship to other Palestinians who are not citizens of Israel or to the entire story of Nakba or the entire story of Palestinian national movements, you actually can appreciate that, wait a second, I, I, I'm not sure these narratives can coalesce so much and, and coexist. So there's something really provocative in this text. You know, Ilana, it's, it's really interesting. As you were talking, Israelis who know the way, the complexity of American Jewish identity should be far more forgiving to Palestinian multiple narratives. Um, because so many anti-Semites are saying the dual loyalty complaints to Israel. But how do you think the American Jewish experience um, could could enrich this? And I know you're saying I'm not West. I don't dual loyalty. But but that same thing. You know where do you know how many Jews want to get buried in Israel or or uh, you know like a, a whole language of core loyalties, other loyalties. Maybe that can also be a framework for us to. You know, the term forgive, like, you know, give a little space. But I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not willing to go that route so much because, because, because the truth is Jewish loyalty to Israel for the most part is not, it's not at war with America. No, the reason why I'm saying it is that the vast majority of Israeli Arab Palestinians and here, whatever their identity, they are not at war with Israel either. They're not only they're not at war, they don't want they don't want Israel to become a Palestinian of course, state. Of they course. don't want the right of return. They want to stay within the homeland of the Jewish people. They just don't want the homeland of the Jewish people to be a Jewish state. They want to be citizens here. So there is more complexity to this. Oh yes. And and by the way, let me just say, I am actually not saying anything about the particular um loyalties of particular Arab Israelis. Far be it from me. I'm not a sociologist. I haven't studied. I have no data. But what I'm really talking about is what I've been wondering lately is how do normalization agreements with the UAE and with other Arab countries impact this conversation? Meaning if at some point Israeli Jews look at all Arabs as the same, which let's be honest, there's a lot of Israeli Jews who just look at all Arabs as the same, just as many people look at all Israelis as the same or all Jews as the same. There's now a differentiation happening. So what does it mean to look at your Arab neighbor and say, do I think about this person as someone I'm in relationship with UAE style? Or do I think about myself as someone who's in relationship with a, a, a Gazan? And I think that also complicates things. But what I'm really saying, like if I really want to boil it down to one thing, is that we don't actually have a model for this in classical Jewish thought. What we have are little bits and pieces from different places where we can say, wait a second, we wanna all be citizens together. So you know what? For the sake of peace, we have to be citizens together and treat each other nicely. And as Yossi said, whatever people say behind closed doors, that's their business. We have another piece somewhere else that essentially says, well, we have to actually be aware that we have very different narratives and that could lead to people oppressing each other. And we have to be very careful about that, right? 
it's it's really patchwork. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is so hard. And there's a responsibility. It's almost like Israeli Jewish paradigms. Just like we talk about Israeli Jewish paradigms in terms of Israeli identity and Jewish identity, there's something here of an Israeli Jewish paradigm that thinks about what does it mean to be a co-citizen with someone who shares certain narratives and also has deeply undercutting narratives as well. It's work. And, you know, the thing that I love most about Zionism um, is that it's the challenges it places before us and the recognition that we as a people coming home, building a strong country is only the beginning of the process. Creating a new Torah, which helps us conceptually deal with these issues. We need to now really think about what is the Torah that we have to produce to make sense of these realities that were unprecedented, we don't have in our tradition. We came unprepared and now we're home. And part of what Israeli and Israeli Arab Palestinians stand before us and say, are saying to us, you need a Torah to make this a little less complicated. Um, you know, we also need a Torah to make it a little less complicated. Yossin, Ilana, it's an absolute delight and pleasure to be with you. For heaven's sake, it's a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Sweet Kelman and edited by Tali Cohen. Transcripts to our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. You want to know what you think about the show? You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us, for heaven's sake, at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show at the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening. And please, all of us, join me with the prayer of Rufu Yossi. We hope by the next time you're feeling much, much better.